Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Father, would you take my lips and speak through them? Would you take our minds and think through them? Would you take our hearts now, grab them, put them on fire for you this morning, that we might leave loving you just a little bit more? So we ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please grab a seat. Good morning. morning. It is a good morning. If we haven't met before, uh, my name is J.D. Meter. I lead the Greensboro Fellows Program here at Church of the Redeemer. And every time I say that, there's one person on the left side that says, Woo! this time it's Kate Harwood. I think it was Scotty last service, but I need to start planning for that. So it's a really fun season of our ministry. We're kind of in the in-between phase. We had a great year last year. But we're putting together some of the details and plans for a really great cohort of um, young graduates to come and be with us in September. And so we can't pull this off without the buy-in from this church. And so if you have been hearing about the fellows or maybe God's touched your heart a little bit to get involved, I want to talk to you about that. We'd love, we'd love to have you host a fellow, mentor a fellow, speak to fellows, feed fellows, or just be my friend. Whatever fits for you, we'd love to, to chat with you about that. It's always a real privilege to get to, uh, to preach here at Church of the Redeemer. I haven't convinced my children of that yet. Um, yesterday, I was running some errands with my kids, and we were in the Trader Joe's parking lot, like any good Christian might be on a Saturday. <laughs> we need arugula. And um, I don't know why I said arugula. I'd never buy that. <laughs> Such a bad lettuce choice. Anyways... Um, my, uh, my daughter, Nora, is very interested in where we're going and who's attending and what things look like. And so she was asking about church today and when we were going and if Jack-Jack was coming. And I was like, Nora, she's three, by the way, um, I'm actually going to have to go a little bit early. And so you're going to go with mommy because daddy's talking in church. And she goes, you're talking? I mean, she was really, I was like, yeah, I mean, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a big deal, but... I've been waiting for you to be proud of me. Anyways, <laughs> and uh, I was like, so does it, I mean, is that good with you? Do you like that? And she goes, yeah, I like that. I was like, oh, this is so great. This is a great father and ministry moment. And I go to unbuckle my seatbelt and get out. But like three-year-olds do, she puts one hand in the air and she goes, but <laughs> Pastor Dan is much better. <laughs> <laughs> And I wish I like, was creative enough to make that up, but I'm not. And so I'm up here humbly before you. <laughs> Good times. So, um, yeah, we are, this morning, we're in, uh, we're in the book of Romans. We're going to be in, hanging out in chapter 8. If you have Bibles or your phone or anything like that, it is helpful for us up here if you follow along with us. So we'd encourage you to do that. We'll start in verse 18. While you're turning there, just a little bit of context on the book of Romans that I think might be helpful. Um, the book of Romans was written by the Apostle Paul. He wrote it in, they think, around AD 57. He was in Corinth, probably, when he wrote it. Um, and like a lot of the writings of Paul that you'll read in the New Testament, it's, it's a letter. It's a letter to a church. 
And I think one thing that is really important when we're reading these letters and these writings is to understand who they are being written to. Um, it's going to change the way, depending on who you write to, how you speak or what you have to say, what your interactions might look like. And for Paul, usually he's writing to groups that he knows really, really well and probably churches that he's planted. So if you read Corinthians or Galatians or especially Philippians, he really loves those guys. Those Ephesians, there's more examples, but these would all be churches that Paul was very intimately involved in and planted. Romans, I'm, he cared for, but it's a little bit different and it's a different context. Paul didn't plant the church in Rome, um, so he's writing to them with a little bit of an agenda. He wants to do something. He wants their support so that he can use it kind of as a, a home base for him to take the gospel to Spain. So when he's writing to them, that's one of the reasons why Romans is a little bit longer than the other letters. It's a little bit more formal. And it's really what, what we get is a unique picture into the person and the ministry of the Apostle Paul. N.T. Wright and Michael Bird said this uh, in their book, The New Testament and Its World. They said that the book of Romans is the most wide-ranging theological statement of Paul's views. What he's doing, a lot of scholars will use the phrase that Paul is presenting Paul's gospel, right? Not to say that his gospel is different than the gospel of Jesus Christ. He makes it very clear that they are aligned with one another. But what you're doing is you're getting a snapshot into what he's going to highlight. If you wanted to get an image of what it might be like to attend a church where the Apostle Paul was leading it, I would encourage you to spend some time in the book of Romans. You're really getting a picture of his theology, of the gospel, and of the Christian life. And so it starts in Romans chapter 1, and it's really this crescendo to one of the most popular chapters in the whole Bible. The fellows tried to memorize it last year. Some did better than others. But it's Romans chapter 8. And we could do a whole summer series on Romans chapter 8. We're not going to do that because it's just me right now in this small portion um, of Romans 18 through 25. But what I think, what I think, and what I hope to convey a little bit this morning is I think that Paul is answering a question that maybe Christians have asked for around 2,000 years. And the, the question is simple, just two words. What now? What now? I, Paul, I've, I've given my life to Christ, I've repented, I've chosen to be a part of what they would have called at the time the way. Now what happens? Now what happens to me? Now what can I expect? What should my thought life be like? But the, the ultimate root of it is what happens now. And we're going to go through this, but I think the answer to this um, that we should look for, in my opinion, is that a Christian now is to cling to the hope of the gospel through Jesus Christ as we face the sufferings and the brokenness of this life. And so we'll start, giving you plenty of time to flip there, we're in verse 18 to start. It says this, Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Our, our passage this morning, according to our lectionary, starts on a little bit of a difficult word, and it's the word suffering, specific, specifically, excuse me, of the present time that Paul finds himself in. Um, sufferings is in my experience of church and ministry, not always everybody's favorite topic to address, and I understand that. But it is a significant one, and it is a hugely biblical one. I had a seminary professor last semester who said this in one of our classes. He says, if you preach to people who are suffering, you will never lack an audience. 
I don't want to be dark or doom and gloom this morning. Everybody seems really happy. We can keep that going. It ends that way. But, 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 but suffering is, like, undoubtedly just a part of the human condition. And I would argue even more so, it's, it goes hand in hand with the Christian condition for the last 2,000 years. Um, last week, if you were here, um, we, I mean, one of the most powerful messages I've, I've ever heard of uh, just a, a, a giant of the faith spending 30 years serving the church of Iran through sufferings and pain and brokenness. And it may be tempting to compare yourself to that and go, well, I, I mean, I don't suffer like that. But from, from the Bible's perspective, suffering is suffering. You're a human being living in a broken world, and you have some experience with this idea of, of suffering. One thing that I really appreciate about the Christian faith, our tradition, and, and the Bible itself is how stunningly open it is around the topic of suffering. The Bible actually never minimizes the suffering that we go through. It never gives us the idea that you're not going to suffer. The Bible's really honest. And what it does do, including this passage and in other places too, is it gives us some avenues of how to express and deal with our suffering. He especially did it towards the end of his life. In John chapter 16, he's in this final discourse moment with his disciples, his followers. And this is what he says in verse 33. He says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation." or depending on your translation, it may say something different. In the world, you may have, you will have, excuse me, struggles, or you will have hardships. It may even say you will have sufferings. It's all the same idea. But take heart, I've overcome the world. It's interesting to me. Jesus doesn't say, if you follow me, watch out, something may come your way. He's very clear. If you are going to walk with me and walk in my ways, you should anticipate suffering coming towards you. And he doubles down on this. It's not just John's gospel. In Matthew chapter 10, in verse 38, he says this. He says, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He says the same thing in Luke. Luke has the almost verbatim the same account. So it's clearly something he said and something that he really emphasized. He doubles down in verse 39. He says, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And I just want to mention this because I think it's important. We can, or at least for me, I can hear that language of taking up one's cross and it can be poetic or romantic. And I'm not discounting that. It, it is. I mean, Jesus was really good with his words. Um, but this statement was a shocking one to the people that he was talking to. The cross was not a symbol that you put on your wall. It was not a symbol that you wore on a necklace. It was certainly not something that you would get tattooed or anything like that. The cross was a horrific symbol that had not been redeemed by Jesus Christ, so it was really a torture device. It was a horrific torture device. It was the picture of Roman oppression. It was the worst imaginable at the time form of killing. It was shameful and awful. So when Jesus looks at his followers and asks them or invites them to take up their cross, what he's asking them to do is to join him in the very definition of suffering. And here's the thing, Jesus, like he always was, was correct about that. One of the greatest arguments for apologetics, and there's a lot of them, and this isn't an apologetics course, um, but one of the best arguments is that there's, 
you can't make the argument that the apostles did all this for a lie. It just doesn't make sense. Like there's, there's a theory that maybe, maybe the disciples, after the death of Jesus, stole the body and just perpetrated this lie. It doesn't logically add up because of how horrifically they were tortured and humiliated. Their families were shamed. There's no way. You can't explain it that way. You can't justify it that way, right? That's the amount of sufferings that happened here. And it happened with our author, Paul. When he's writing about sufferings, he knew. First-handed experience. Paul was shipwrecked three times, which, just to pause here, at what point do you just, I don't like boats. <laughs> I grew up on the coast, I like boats. Never been shipwrecked, not once, two, or three times. <laughs> the first time, bad luck. The second time, God might be telling you something. Third time, I'm going to walk, right? I just, <laughs> he was shipwrecked, he was imprisoned. Um, and as he corresponds with the Corinthians, he describes that he was lashed 40 times minus one, which might sound like odd language, but what, what it was, it was a cat of nine tails, and they would whip you, and they said if, they, if you were whipped 40 times, it would kill you. So they whipped Paul 39 times. So he was taken to the brink of death, right? So we're talking about immense suffering. Paul dealt with bandits. He dealt with angry Gentiles. He dealt with angry Jews, sometimes together. He was hungry to the point of near starvation. He was impoverished. He was homeless. He was stoned. And eventually, they did kill him. I, um, I had the opportunity to travel with my wife's family, my family, uh, to Italy this summer. It's an amazing place. You should go. So many carbohydrates. And we praise God for that. Um, but if you, if you like history... Rome is just this magical, I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing place. And one of the, we got to visit some of the sites. It was awesome. There's the Roman Forum, which is ancient Rome, biblical Rome, first century Greco-Roman world. And, and at the edge of that, there's, a, there's this structure. It's, it's a, the Catholic Church has built a basilica over this thing. But really what's at the bottom is it's, it's just a cave, just a rock cave. And that place is called the Mamertine Prison. Um, it was built in 7 B.C. in Rome, um, and the Romans would use it for religious and political offenders. And so it's actually at this place, the reason they built a church on top of it, um, the Catholic Church believes, and I, I think most history would agree with this, that it's actually where Peter was imprisoned before they crucified him, and it's where Paul was imprisoned right before he died. It's actually where they think he wrote Second Timothy. If you've read Second Timothy, it's language of Paul just um, of suffering. And it was, it was a wild experience to just stand in this room. It was not very big. I mean, it's, this, it's a relatively small rock room, and there's a, just kind of a cut-out circle on top where the sun would maybe shine through certain hours of the day. So, I mean, it, and it was just this wild moment where you can read and hear about people suffering and these heroes of the faith and what they went through. But it is a wild thing, if you've ever had the opportunity to do this in Israel or elsewhere, to stand in a room where these giants sat and, and just really did suffer. And so I say all this not to, again, not to be doom and gloom, but these are real sufferings for real people. And it's still happening today for Christians all over the world. I am, I'm just saying this. I'm saying that suffering in the Christian tradition is just part of the buy-in. It's part of the deal. Here's what I'm not saying. Please don't email me and definitely don't email Dan. <laughs> I am not saying that you should go find 
ways to suffer or be imprisoned or do weird things where you end up in jail. Like, the fellow's guy told me to. No, he didn't. I did not do that. Don't put that on me. Oswald Chambers, I think, sums up what I'm saying pretty well. He's saying that no healthy Christian ever chooses suffering. He chooses God's will, as Jesus did, whether that meant suffering or not. So what I'm saying is, I I don't want you to be suffering right now, just for the record, but you might be, and you shouldn't be surprised by it if you're staying in step with the Spirit. I've met with some new believers from time to time, and I've heard this phrase, paraphrased in different ways. JD, I've I've started following Jesus, and um, I kind of thought that things were gonna get better and easier, but they just haven't. And I understand how that thought process can happen. If we're just being honest, there are plenty of speakers and preachers who tell you, bring Jesus your problems, and you just won't have problems anymore. The problem with that message, as nice as it is, it's not in this book. That's not it. That is not what Jesus calls us into. Um, it's dangerous theology. And if you start to think that way, and things do go wrong, then you start to ask some really unhealthy questions. Is God mad at me? Am I doing this weird karma thing with the Lord Almighty where I get blessed if I do good and bad if I don't? That's not the case. That's not the gospel message at all. Um, and, and it can be really scary. Here, here would be my rebuttal if, if you've had that thought process, and I have. I believe that God Almighty is most delighted in his son, Jesus Christ. That is my belief. That is in the Bible. There is no one who has ever suffered more than Jesus Christ, and it was delighting to God. What this passage is Paul's writing, I think what it shows us is that Christians are not immune to suffering, but instead we should expect it and that we should be ready for it. This passage shows us that walking with God doesn't guarantee an easier, easier life. I would actually argue that you can expect it to be a little bit harder. You start to open up this idea of spiritual warfare or um, the phrase biblically, dying to self. I don't have time to get into that, but dying to self doesn't sound like the most comfortable thing on the planet. Tim Keller said this. He said that Jesus did not suffer so that you would not suffer. He suffered so that when you suffer, you'll become more like him. The gospel does not promise you better life circumstances. It promises you a better life. But Paul doesn't just talk about us and our sufferings. He moves on and and starts to talk about creation. In verse 19, he says that for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And that sounds good, that eager longing idea, but I I think it falls short of the original meaning. The the Greek word for eager longing, it's it's like the utmost level of anticipation. It's edge of your seat, leaning in what's about to happen. A commentary I read said that this word would be as if you were at a, like you're at a race and the, the leaders are coming and you're excited to see them. And so you're, you're hanging over the rope looking ahead so that you might just catch a glimpse of what's to come. That's the level of anticipation. That's the picture that Paul's painting. All of creation, all the grass of the fields, the birds of the air, that farm over there is leaning forward just to catch a glimpse of what's to come. It's a pretty beautiful picture. It's a pretty beautiful idea, I think. And then in verse 22, he, you've got this eager anticipation. But then in verse 22, he uses this phrase, for we know that the whole creation 
has been, and I love this word choice, groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Don't you love that word, groaning? We all kind of know what that means. It's not a yell, it's not a cry, it's a groan. It's something from the depths, it's from the diaphragm, it's from your core, groaning. So yeah, we're eagerly waiting, but we're also just so longing through the brokenness that's been experienced of this creation for what Jesus Christ has to offer. All of creation's doing that with, and I'm not gonna get into this phrase, but you can picture with the pains of childbirth. That's the level of intensity that everything around us is looking for God to restore this place. You included, by the way. He goes on to use some other fun language. I love, I love Paul's word choice. In verse 23, he says, not only the creation is groaning, but we ourselves. Isn't that we, as believers in Christ, there's something in us that is joining with creation in groaning for the redemption of all things, whether we choose to acknowledge it or not. Part of being a believer is not sidestepping suffering or sidestepping brokenness. It's actually acknowledging it, lamenting it, and joining in with creation for what is to come. All of creation's doing this, we should be doing this too. And then Paul uses this language. He says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. The word first fruits is probably not one you throw around a lot. Um, I mean, maybe some of the farmers do, but it's an agrarian term. It shows up throughout the Bible. Um, and the idea of the first fruits is um, it was a joyous occasion to receive first fruits. So if you planted a field for harvest and you start to see your, it's not creatively named, your first fruits coming out, you would take those and you would celebrate because it was a symbol that the rest of this field is going to come to be, right? And you could use that. You could actually use this to leverage. You could sell the rest of your field in advance based on the first fruit. So it's a down payment. It's a guarantee of the thing that is to come. And so what does Paul say here? As we're in our groaning with creation, we've actually been given the first fruits, the guarantee, the down payment for what's to come through the form of the Holy Spirit. And this idea of first fruits, it shows up throughout the Bible, right? It's referenced in Exodus. It calls the Israelites to bring their first fruits into the storehouse. Maybe you've heard that language. Um, G, Paul actually is going to refer to Jesus in this phrase of first fruits. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says that Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of all those who are asleep. What does that mean? It means that Christ has risen and we're all going to rise too. It's the first of what is to come in the last days. We received the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. And so what does this mean? It means that while we're in our suffering, while we're in our groaning, we're acknowledging that, we're dealing with that, we're waiting for the glory that is to come. In the midst of that, the Holy Spirit and the kingdom of God breaks its way in. It's this, it's this I just don't fully understand this idea, but I love it so much. And Paul, Paul, he loves the language of fruits. He uses it all the time. So did Jesus, by the way. Um, in, in Galatians, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, right? And that's love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's a few people who are thinking of VBS back in the day and just singing along. Um, he loves that language. Here's, when I hear those phrases and all those elements of the fruit of the Spirit, my first thought, and maybe this is yours too, is, man, I've got some ways to grow in those. 
Like, I really actually need to grow in my patience as a parent and as a husband. I really need to grow in my gentleness. I really lack self-control sometimes. But here's another truth to that. Um, When I look back, and maybe when you look back too, uh, at when you started following Christ, I bet you're a little bit better at those things than you were then. I bet the Holy Spirit has already started to work in your life, follower of Christ, to increase the fruit of the Spirit, right? That's what it looks like, this breaking in of the kingdom, the kingdom of now and not yet. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. I think C.S. Lewis really paints a cool picture of this. It's in movies, but the books are better to be that guy. The Chronicles of Narnia and The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe um, when, when the four children go into Narnia, it's winter, right? And the phrase that's used to kind of symbolize the brokenness of this world that, that C.S. Lewis uses, he says that it's always winter, but never Christmas, right? But as things start to move and as things start to change, at one point they're at the beaver's house and the beaver goes outside, he calls the children out because something has happened. And we're Anglican, so we'll call Santa Father Christmas like C.S. Lewis does, Because Father Christmas shows up, and it's a symbol that winter, although it's still here, is starting to fade away. And this is what Father Christmas says. I love it. He says, I've come at last. She, the witch, that's the symbol of the enemy, she has kept me out for a long time, but I've got in at last. Aslan is on the move. And Aslan is this roaring lion that we just sang about. It's a symbol of of Jesus Christ. It's this beautiful idea that even though we're experiencing winter, hope and the kingdom is breaking in through the Holy Spirit. Speaking of hope, Paul gets really excited about hope. In verses 24 and 25, he uses, they're short verses, he uses the word hope five times. You ever get around somebody who's really excited about something and they just say it over and over and over and over? For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes? But but if we hope, 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 hope. He's excited about hope. Hey, as much as as suffering is a strong biblical thing that we should focus on, hope is even stronger. It's even more prevalent. This book is a book about hope. It's a book about love, but it's certainly a book about hope as well. In Romans 15, Paul actually identifies God himself with the word hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. In 1 Peter 1.3, it says that according to his, that's Jesus' great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to what? To a living hope. Colossians 1.27, this is Paul again. He's excited about it. Paul refers to Christ in you, the spirit in you, as the hope of glory that is to come. In Ephesians 1, he writes to the church at Ephesus, and he says that we are, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to know the hope to which he has called you in this in-between kingdom. And friends, I wanna be really clear about what Paul is hopeful for. You probably already know this, but just in case you don't, I think it's pretty important. We have this hope in spite of our sufferings because Jesus Christ is who he says he is. Jesus Christ, according to Paul, according to the Bible, and according to all things, is the Lord. Jesus Christ is God Almighty. 
He was before all things. He is in all things. All things are through him. His enemies are currently situated under his feet. And I think Paul, he uses another passage in the Philippians that I think really sums up why we have this hope. It's in Philippians 2. He says that who, it's Jesus, being in very nature God, he didn't even consider equality with God something to be grasped. So he humbled himself, it's Jesus. And Jesus became obedient to death, even death on a cross. But therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, a day is coming that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth to the glory of God the Father. Friends, we have hope because that's who Jesus is. He won, he is winning, and he will win. To go back to C.S. Lewis again, I can't help myself. In the same book, movie, please be book, he says, it says this about, about that. It says that wrong will be made right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bares his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we will have spring again. Friends, Jesus Christ is going to come back. Jesus Christ is going to wipe away all the tears of so many people who have been suffering for 2,000 years. I'm excited to see it. This passage tells us a few things that he's gonna do. It says that he, when he returns, is gonna reveal his ultimate glory to us. I don't know what that means. I wanna see it. It says that he's gonna reveal the sons of God. It says that he's gonna restore creation, the creation that's eagerly longing, that's groaning. Jesus Christ is gonna restore that. He's gonna adopt us as sons. That might sound funny, because aren't I already adopted as a son and daughter? Yes, but there's more. It's the now and the not yet. And he's gonna redeem our physical bodies again. And it's for this reason and for so many more, friends, we are people of hope in the midst of suffering. So for application, what does this actually look like? I mean, I guess you could just say be hopeful. That's a good place to start. But I, I maybe go back to the first verse of this passage. It's in verse 18. For I consider that word, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That word consider in some older translation, it's the word reckon, for I reckon. And it's not because Paul's from South Carolina like me. Like, it's not, it sounds like my, some of my grandmother would say. But that's not, that's not what's happening here. It's, it's a tricky word to translate because it's an accounting word. It's, it's to actually hold up and weigh against one another for, to consider and to reckon with, right? So what's he doing? I'm considering that the, the sufferings of this present age, which is personal and also just the age in general, in comparison to the glory that is coming. And the, the words that he uses is they are not even worth comparing. And so, friends, my, my challenge and maybe consideration for you, in the midst of your sufferings, can we be a people that acknowledges them, maybe groans and laments them, and also have a kingdom perspective that Jesus Christ is bigger than those sufferings? Can we do all these things? There is, there is actually no worldview. I've, I've read quite a bit about this this week. 
more than I should have, to be honest. But there is no worldview that handles suffering better than the Christian worldview. We either try to avoid it or we make light of it, but the Christian worldview looks at it, acknowledges it, and says our God's bigger than it. And that what's to come is better than what's in the here and the now. But what's to come is actually in you. And it's the hope of glory. And so if this is new language to you, if you're like, I don't know about this whole hope thing, um, man, I would just tell you that if you're looking for hope like that, if you're living, looking to live a life of hope like that, you can find it in one place and one person. It's the person of Jesus Christ. There is no time like the present to cast your burdens onto him, to lay your life down to him, and to allow that Holy Spirit to fill you in a way that won't take away your sufferings, but will empower you to walk with Jesus Christ through your sufferings. So friends, here at Church of the Redeemer, I, my prayer is this, that, that we would be a people that are known for hope, that we would be a people that acknowledge our sufferings, that we would walk with each other in and through our sufferings, that we would be a people that actually join with creation to, to eagerly wait and to groan for what Christ has promised. And may we be people who are constantly thinking about the glory that is to come and to be revealed to us, that we might truly be a people of hope. Amen.